Today's passage is from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as himself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Before we jump into this week's sermon, take a minute on each of the following three questions. You'll probably want to hit pause in between so you have enough time. In light of this parable, number one, who is God and how do I relate to him? Two, in light of this parable, who am I and how does God relate to me? Three, in light of this parable, how is God calling me to love him, his church, and my neighbor more? After listening to this week's sermon, go back and spend a few minutes reflecting on how your answers may have changed or not. You may be surprised by the difference that Jesus makes. This week's parable of the Good Samaritan is easily the most well-known. Hospitals are named after it, and news reports are almost wholly incapable of using any label other than Good Samaritan when referring to a stranger who helps someone in need. The ethic of this parable has so shaped our culture and society, it is such a universally assumed value that one of the precious few things almost all of us can agree on would be generosity to those in need. Marketing campaigns and commercials wouldn't leverage sentiments like paying it forward or random acts of kindness if the Good Samaritan didn't effectively resonate with the vast majority of their audience on a cultural level, us. In fact, and with no small degree of irony, the universality of the parable of the Good Samaritan being taken for granted makes it incredibly ripe and important for us because we can easily miss both the moral of the story and the gospel in this story. First, let's talk about the moral of the story. And, and here's the bottom line up front. Jesus is making it unavoidably clear that our personal, material, and spiritual love for our fellow man is an essential divine commandment limited only by available resources and another's need, period. Let me say that again. Jesus is making it vividly clear that our personal, material, and spiritual care for our fellow man is an essential divine commandment limited only by available resources and another's need, period. And he, he makes this clear through a variety of very important details in the story. First, Jesus situates the story on the road to Jericho. 
a road so commonly waylaid by robbers that no fool would travel it alone, to make it clear that compassion is not limited by wisdom or even, well, they should have known better. It just doesn't matter. Secondly, Jesus describes the Good Samaritan giving such personal attention to show that compassion is actually not fully expressed at a distance, no matter how financially generous it might be. Three, Jesus specifies how much money the Samaritan gave the innkeeper, two denarii or two days wages, as a starting point for generosity to illustrate a default generosity, a, a, a floor to that ceiling. Plus, whatever more you spend to illustrate that generosity spares no expense when it's confronted with need. Fourth, Jesus contrasts the Good Samaritan with the religious leaders who would have been both highly respected and expected to be the heroes of the story in order to show the universality of the command to love our neighbor. In other words, we are all equipped to love our neighbor. It is not just limited to those whose profession should include it. Five, and perhaps most importantly, the Good Samaritan was an avowed enemy of Israel. Samaritans were someone that every Jew would have agreed betrayed God by worshiping idols and betrayed their brethren brethren by siding with various oppressors throughout history. It's the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of an IRA member stopping to aid a British Protestant dock worker in Northern Ireland during the early 90s, or a runaway slave saving the life of a Confederate soldier during the Civil War. It was so radical and offensive to imagine a Samaritan being the hero of the story, that when Jesus asked the lawyer who proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers, the lawyer couldn't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. Instead, he answered, the one that showed mercy. And man, did you, did you catch actually how Jesus did his own original Jesus juke with that subtle twist to the lawyer's original question? Instead of answering the question, who is my neighbor? He subversively chose to answer it as if the question was, whose neighbor am I? I know that sounds like a difference without a, or a distinction without a difference, but there's a reason why he did that. Quite simply, it pulls in the second half of the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself to be part of the definition of neighbor in the first place. In reframing the, Jeff, the, the and sorry, in reframing the question, Jesus is calling out that you wouldn't want anyone to exclude you from this command. Thus, you cannot exclude anyone from the scope of the love that it calls you to. In other words, we are not, in fact, loving as we would want to be loved if we are limiting the scope of who our neighbor is. Thus, we must see ourselves as a neighbor to all people, period. That is the moral of the story. So where is the gospel in this story? Well, the key to the whole thing, the the answer to that question is in the context of this passage. Remember the lawyer who Jesus was talking with? It says he sought to justify himself. What does that mean? It means to defend yourself as righteous already, not needing to change. He was trying to wiggle out of that requirement to love your neighbor, much like my four-year-old son does when he constantly asks why after I've asked him to do something. But even before that, it says his original question was what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, did you catch the contradiction in that question? It's almost so obvious, it's actually pretty easy to miss. An inheritance is something that you receive on the basis of your relationship with the one who bequeaths it to you. There's nothing to do 
nothing to earn. And yet this lawyer is asking, what must I do to be counted among the inheritors? So why the glaring contradiction? Bluntly, because the lawyer saw himself as already doing enough to be saved. Having checked all the boxes of God's commandments, he thought he was spiritually rich and was righteous already. He has had righteousness enough already. He was trying to trap Jesus into publicly confirming his own authority over, over and above Jesus's. So in telling this parable, Jesus was actually holding up a mirror that turned his attempted coup back on himself and exposed two huge problems. First, this lawyer committed one of the most epic self-owns in the history of the world. Jesus delivered a rabbinical sucker punch that effectively communicated without having to quote Egret from Game of Thrones, you know nothing, Jon Snow. You see, in seeking to justify himself in front of an audience, he ends up doing the opposite and proves the maxim that knowing a lot of information about something, and in this case, God's heart and character expressed in Old Testament law, does not mean you get it in the ways that it matters most. Another way of saying this, reading even a very well-written review of Pappy Van Winkle 20-year year bourbon is not the same as tasting that sweet nectar of the gods. And I can say that from experience. Like the priest and Levite who passed by the half-dead man on the side of the road and who are ironically probably on their way back home after leading temple worship in Jerusalem, this lawyer was missing the forest for the trees. Kind of like when I, when I point to something I'm trying to get my dog Scout to look at, she ends up just staring at my finger because she thinks that that is the point instead of the thing I'm trying to point to. Similarly, the lawyer does not understand that the purpose of the law is to point us to love both for God and neighbor. And, and this sets up the second thing that Jesus exposes, which is love from God for us. And this second thing that Jesus exposes is, is more important by far. Because not only did the lawyer misunderstand the ethical purpose of God's law, by lowering its bar and limiting its scope, he also completely misses the gospel purpose of God's law. Jesus is using this parable to show how there is actually no human way to meet the minimum floor of these two greatest commandments. Never mind the aspirational ceiling of love that they're pointing to. It's an impossible standard. And the only way to believe that it's possible or to believe otherwise is, to, is by either dismissing or diminishing God's law or ignoring how we fail to love according to it. We are blind in one direction or another. So you see, Jesus was hoping to accomplish what I hope I have carried throughout the sermon so far, to tease out all the implications, provoke our imaginations, and to show how our starting point in conversations about love and service to others is the root of the problem. Our starting point, like the lawyers, is that we actually put ourselves in the shoes of the Good Samaritan, the proverbial hero in the story. When we do, we then compare our record to his example and to see how we measure up. Am I being a Good Samaritan? Do I love in this way and to this degree? Am I this sacrificially generous? We're trying to justify ourselves in that. And in focusing there, we miss how the two greatest commandments are actually two sides of the same coin that we cannot love as the Good Samaritan did until we first see ourselves as the broken, destitute, bankrupt, half-dead dude lying in a pool of his own blood on the side of the road. Yes, 
Jesus is actually answering the question of how or whether we love our neighbor as we ought to, but he does so by rejecting its premise for a different one, that we can't love God or neighbor well unless we first are profoundly affected and transformed by God's love for us. Now, I know this passage doesn't really say that as explicitly as I just did, but this point absolutely absolutely saturates the context of the passages that are bookending this parable, right? Immediately before this, Jesus sends 72 of his disciples two by two to towns throughout the region to proclaim the coming kingdom. When they get back, they are literally ecstatic and in awe of all the the demons they had cast out and the good that they had done in Jesus's name. And that's great, right? So how does Jesus respond? (laughs) He says, essentially, I'm paraphrasing here, hey guys, uh, that's all well and good, but don't put the cart before the horse. Don't rejoice over being able to perform miracles. Instead, rejoice over the far greater miracle that you who are dead in your sin will inherit eternal life. Then, <laughs> right after the parable, jumping to the end, Luke contrasts the heart, motivation, the heart motivations of two sisters as they hosted Jesus in their home. Martha, who, much like the lawyer prompting this parable, is, is anxious and busy doing all the right and hospitable things that she misses the point of hospitality that her sister, Mary, just gets, which is this, to to simply be, be with and enjoy God's love in God's presence. It's not that hospitality is bad. Definitely don't hear me say that. You know me better than that. It's that when we think we can do anything to inherit eternal life or be saved or earn God's love or however one phrases it, we will be troubled and anxious to justify ourselves more than loving God or neighbor. Now, as a side note, by the way, this is why corporate worship on Sunday mornings is so important. It is a unique refueling through communion with God and one another that empowers our love for God and neighbor throughout the week. Too many American Christians have a view of Sunday worship that is either anemic in that it is optional or interchangeable with whatever floats our boat, or consumeristic in that it is for you and for your being fed, that it is only sustainable That idea is only sustainable if we have so lowered the bar for loving our neighbor that something other than responding to God's word through God's worship among God's people could possibly suffice. But that's another sermon for another time. Here's where I want to leave you this morning. In sum, the moral, the proverbial moral of the story is that we are called to love God and neighbor with everything we have without qualification. And when we see how short we fall of that standard, we will begin to see ourselves as the one lying half dead on the side of the road and unable to justify ourselves. The gospel in this story is that Jesus, not us, Jesus is the good Samaritan who saves us from our inability to love as the law demands by fulfilling the law through love for us. He didn't just sacrifice his time and a few denarii for our good. He sacrificed himself and hung half dead on a cross on the side of a hill and became our justification, our moral record that we could never accomplish on our own. To the degree that we are affected by that love, we will love the Lord our God with all our heart 
and with all our soul and with all our strength and with all our mind. And to the degree that we are affected by that love, we will love our neighbor as ourselves. Rejoice in that love and you won't be able to help but be affected by it.